Hello. Hi. Hi. Welcome to the next episode of the Brio in the Box podcast. Yep. What are we going to talk about today? Today is a big one. We're going to dive into mental health. It is May. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Mm -hmm. It's a topic we've been meaning to tackle for a while. Yeah, we've been sort of not putting this one off, but planning and debating how we want to address this one. So it's, it's a big topic for us. It's one that's like close to our hearts and... I think we're going to spend a few episodes on it. So mm-hmm. uh, spend today talking about like mental health in general. What are the sort of stats? What's what's the causes? What's the root of it all? And then we're going to talk a little bit about our personal experiences with it. Mm-hmm. And then future episodes, we'll get into treatment, prevention, how to deal with mm-hmm. it. And then we'll we'll finish probably a third episode with the future. What's What's coming down the road when it comes to mental health treatment? Yeah. Awesome. So... Yeah, we'll talk about all the stuff you said in this episode. Episode two, we're going to talk about like diet and lifestyle factors, treatment, prevention, things that are under your control. And then episode three, we'll get into some of the cutting edge stuff, the psychedelics, mm. what's out there. Robots. Ro- maybe. <laughs> it's a mental health robot. <laughs> okay, so let's start with just some of the stats. Let's talk about what the problem is and how bad is it. Yeah, I think it's the biggest problem with mental health, I think, is that people just don't talk about it enough, right? It is way more common than you think. In These are all Canadian statistics. So in Canada, 8 to 10% of people have long-term depression and 10 to 12% have anxiety. Mm -hmm. There's other types of mental health, but we're really more focused on those two main ones. So that's like millions of people. Yeah. Millions of Canadians. Yeah. So a large percentage of the population, like long-term, right? Not just, oh, my aunt died and I was sad for a week. It was like, this is like serious stuff. But even worse than that is by the age of 40, 50% of Canadians have experienced some type of mental illness. Mm -hmm. So that's half the population right there. You know, it's super common. 15 to 24 year olds are the age group most likely to experience mental health problems. Mm-hmm. So it's um, affecting young people for very sure. severely. We'll talk about the, f- the future of our population is like struggling the most. And we've all been through those angsty teenage years where it's your self-confidence is zero and mm-hmm. you don't know how to, what making it through a day is just like a challenging job. So, but so. it's absolutely not just that now there's something much more severe for than sure. just like teenage angst affecting yes. our kids. Yeah. It's definitely like growing into a bigger problem. Yeah. So mental health doubles the risk of substance abuse and adults are three times more likely to have mental illness. So people are basically self-medicating as a means to try to fix this and causing again, long-term future problems that are being like caused by the the mental issues. And certainly the opioid crisis is a major issue right now. So there's some overlap between Mental health crisis, opioid crisis, drug addiction, deaths of despair, as they're often called. Yeah, You barely go a a day of looking at the news without some mention of opioids or Mm -hmm. mental illness and substance abuse is the leading cause of disability in Canada. Mm. So more so than like work injuries or anything else, it's like people are just struggling mentally and they just can't do anything about it, right? The disease burden, so the effect it has on society is 1.5 times greater than that of all cancers combined and seven times that of all infectious diseases. Hmm. So not only is it just affecting the individual, it's affecting the people around that individual, Mm -hmm. jobs, businesses, all that kind of stuff. The total economic cost of mental health is $50 billion a year. Yeah. So that's not what we're spending on mental health. It's just the amount of lost work hours and treatments and all that kind of stuff. $50 billion a year. Yeah. That's crazy. Deaths of despair is slowly increasing since the 2000s. Those include, like you said, suicides, 
drug drug overdoses drug overdoses alcohol deaths not like drunk driving but actual just death from alcohol and here this is super alarming 12 people commit suicide every single day but 200 people make an attempt Mm -hmm. so every single day 200 people are trying to end their life it is ridiculous so Um, that's in canada eight people every hour are attempting suicide yeah and one person every two hours dies by suicide in canada yeah super alarming and this is the worst part in my opinion anyways 21% 21% of suicides are age group 10 to 14. So these are kids that haven't even began to live and they're killing themselves. Mm-hmm. And then 29% of suicides are 15 to 19 and 24% are 20 to 24. So you're looking at 70% of the, the suicides are people that have barely started to live, right? Yeah. Super tragic. So our young people are bearing the burden of mental health and then the very fatal consequences of mental illness yeah. disproportionately. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And like you said, it's not just teenage angst. It's like there's major problems happening here. Mm-hmm. And I think that it gets pushed aside as, oh, they'll grow out of it kind of thing. But it's no, there's there's a, a root cause of all of this that, that people need to pay better attention to. I saw some data from the NIH, so that's U.S., National Institute of Health. The number of adolescents aged 12 to 17 that reported experiencing a major depressive disorder within the past year was 17%. Right. That's a very high number, right? That's almost one in five. You go to any high school and you ask, you take a survey. But that number in 2007 was 8%. So it's more than doubled in a little over a decade, a decade and a half, I guess. 2007 is longer ago than I thought. Yeah. So that's all genders combined, broken down by gender. 25% of females age 12 to 17 report a major depressive disorder, whereas 9% of males mm-hmm. in that age category. And the numbers are similar for clinical depression and major depressive disorder. So it's like when our young people are affected by a mental illness, they're affected very severely. It's mm-hmm. a major issue. Right. Major depressive disorder interrupts your ability to participate in life. Sometimes it ends up being institutionalized. Right. So traditionally, people blame serotonin. Anybody that's heard anything about you know, mental health, it's always, oh, you're, you've got a chemical imbalance. Mm -hmm. And I think that historically people would be like, oh, well, I have a, I have a chemical imbalance in my brain. There's nothing I can do about it other than, you know, take these pills to, to Mm -hmm. figure this out. But in looking at the science that's been changed. Yeah. So I'm going to, I have lots of citations in front of me. I'm going to quote some things just to try to really drive the point home. If anybody's interested in reading the actual papers that this stuff comes from, I'm happy to share the citations. So the field of psychiatry is really undergoing a reckoning right Right. now. Quite a lot of dramatic, very controversial stuff is happening. The last major advancement in psychiatry was the invention of the SSRIs in the mid-90s, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. That's drugs like Prozac and Zoloft and stuff that they're brand names. Mm -hmm. There's actually very little long-term data on the use of, of antidepressants and SSRIs. Most of the randomized controlled trials that were used to test the safety and efficacy of those drugs were not more than like a year or two, Mm -hmm. but now they've been out for a little over 30 years. So we're starting to understand or have some data on the long-term efficacy. So this was a big paper published in PLOS One in April 22. So a year ago, antidepressants and health related quality of life. So this is a survey they give people, they gave it to 17 and a half million patients that had been diagnosed with depression and they did long-term follow-up nine years just over half of the 17 and a half million took antidepressants and the other half did not. So they used eight quality of life measurements, their physical functioning, 
role limitations due to physical health. So that's where you like can't get out of bed, can't take care of your kids, can't go to your job because of physical health problems, Mm -hmm. body pain, general health, like just basically your immune status and ability to fight off general illnesses, vitality. So your energy versus fatigue, social functioning, your ability to maintain relationships, role limitations due to emotional problems. So same thing where you can't get out of bed, you can't take care of your kids because of emotional issues. And then mental health, so psychological distress versus psychological well-being. And what they found, based on these eight quality of life measurements, this is a direct quote, it was concluded that there was no significant improvement in quality of life for those taking the antidepressants. Right. So the real-world effect of using antidepressant medications does not continue to improve patient health, patient health-related quality of life over time. Future studies should not only focus on short-term effect of pharmacology, but mm-hmm. should investigate the long-term impact. Yeah. So the drugs aren't it. They're not working. But why? Like, yeah. what's going on? There was a big paper that came out in the journal Nature last July, so less than a year ago. Nature is one of the big scientific journals. There's like Cell, Science, Nature. Yeah. This is the Molecular Psychiatry sub-journal of Nature. It was called the serotonin theory of depression. And it was a systematic umbrella review of the evidence, which is this is the peak of the evidence hierarchy. This is the summation of all of the data that's out there. This is published in the most major journal in the world. And these are the direct quotes. The main areas of serotonin research provide no consistent evidence of there being an association between serotonin and depression and no support for the hypothesis that depression is caused by lowered serotonin activity or concentrations. So, And it actually says some evidence was consistent with the possibility that long-term antidepressant use actually reduces serotonin concentration. It might make things worse. So the serotonin theory of depression, that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance in your brain, is false. Yeah. It has been falsified. There's there just is not good data to support it. But like 80% of the general population believes that depression is a chemical imbalance in the brain. And then people are taking these drugs that are like affecting their serotonin levels, Mm -hmm. hoping it's going to cause a problem or fix a problem. Yeah. But then the drug itself have a ton of side effects that are super common. Mm -hmm. So here's just a few of the side effects that happen or can happen with SSRIs. Insomnia, headaches, rash, blurred vision, drowsiness, dry mouth, agitation, nervousness, dizziness, pain in the joints or muscles, upset stomach, nausea, or diarrhea, and then these are the big ones. 72% of people have sexual problems, mm-hmm. which that's enough to cause depression yeah. on its Lack own. of desire, erectile dysfunction, yep. loss of sexual function. 65% foggy brain or emotionally numb feelings. 65% experience weight gain. And then 73% of people when trying to get off will experience some type of withdrawal. Mm-hmm. So it's also super habit forming, probably even addictive. Yeah. So people get on it. They stay on it way longer than they should. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really help anything and it causes a bunch of side effects. And here's another quote from another study. It says, some people, especially children and young adults, may be more likely to have suicidal thoughts when they take SSRIs. Studies show that when compared to results from taking a placebo, chances of having suicidal thoughts doubled from between 1% and 2% to between 2 and 4 mm-hmm. when taking any kind of antidepressant, including an SSRI. Yeah. It's like that's the thing you're supposed to be avoiding avoid <laughs> and fixing, and yet it's like causing people to have more of those extreme thoughts. Yeah. Now, let's just pause for a moment to say we are not medical professionals. No. We are not your doctor. This is not medical advice. We are simply reviewing what's out there in the scientific literature right now. What's the most current thing going on? Yeah. 
don't just stop taking your meds. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't do that. This is just, if you wanted to educate yourself and have this conversation with your doctor, with your psychiatrist and discuss mm-hmm. it with them, that's absolutely none of my business. I just like to share the science. So that's, yep. that's all we're doing here. Nothing I'm going to say isn't supported by peer reviewed science from major journals. For sure. I think something people need to understand about serotonin, we, people are familiar with that word and they think brain, they think happy, happy hormone, happy neurotransmitter in the brain. Yeah. It's actually 95% of the serotonin in your body is in your gut. Mm -hmm. And actually your gut is made of neural tissue. So sometimes people refer to the gut as the second brain, but serotonin is involved in a lot of things besides just making you feel happy and content. So critical processes like growth, digestion, immune function. So disrupting serotonin levels can have like widespread negative health effects, like all of the things you just listed. And that's wise because serotonin is not exclusive to the brain. So when you mess with it, you mess with widespread systemic bodily functions. Mm -hmm. So (coughs) what depression is not, it's not a chemical imbalance in the brain that explains why the SSRIs are not particularly effective long-term. Basically those drugs are hitting the bullseye on the wrong target. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The field of molecular psychiatry has been off in one direction that turned out not to be the thing. And now the whole field is like, what do we do? How do we help people? Because the theory that they thought they were working off has been falsified. The only tool that they had isn't working, but rates of major mental illness are skyrocketing, suicide and deaths of despair. Like people are suffering. Mm -hmm. So how do we help people? And in order to help people, we have to understand what is the cause, like what is causing all these mental health disorders in order to try to make it better. Right. So this is a new paper that just came out like a few days ago, April 26th, 2023 in JAMA journal, of the American medical association in their psychiatry division evaluation of brain body health in individuals with common neuropsychiatric disorder. So the big four are depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, and bipolar disorder. And they wanted to see what would be a better predictor of who had major mental health issues. Was it a neuroimaging brain scan? Could they see structural changes in the brain or would it be markers of body health? So various like organ systems or blood markers or that kind of stuff. So they found that the score is indexing particularly metabolic health. So that's glucose, HbA1c, insulin, hepatic function. So that's whether you have fatty liver disease, like your liver enzyme function, Mm -hmm. immune health, having to do a lot with autoimmune disorders and chronic inflammation. Those ones particularly deviated from normative reference ranges for all four neuropsychiatric disorders. So in this cross-sectional study, the neuropsychiatric disorders shared a substantial and largely overlapping imprint of poor body health. Mm -hmm. So So in layman's terms, in layman's terms, when your body is unhealthy, so is your brain, right? Your brain is an organ in your body. (laughs) When your body is deranged and malfunctioning and chronically inflamed, so is your brain, right? If you follow me on the keto athlete, you know, I've been like raging in all caps for years that like mental health is not separate from physical health. And in fact, it's bonkers that we even talk about mental health as a separate category and don't just call it health. Right. So the brain being an organ in the body is how we need to think of it. It's, you know, your emotional health is not some separate esoteric thing from the function of your body. Right. So the health of your body is what predicts mental health disorder. Not, it's not a chemical imbalance in the brain. It's not a structural change in just the brain. It's the whole body. Right. It's systemic. So they had a better likelihood of detecting mental health due to body testing than just like mental uh, imaging. Yeah. Brain neuroimaging scan. So if they scanned your brain and did a bunch of like blood markers and tests of your body function, particularly Mm -hmm. looking for 
glucose, fasting insulin, HbA1c, your liver enzymes, chronic inflammation, markers of immune dysfunction. The people that had outside the normative range, so they had red flags for all those metabolic dysfunctions, those were the people that had the mental health disorders. Right. And they couldn't find anything particularly conclusive or identifiable on just a brain imaging scan. Right. So the dysfunction was in the systemic Physical, body yeah. health, right. not in any th- detectable brain structure. So yeah, it's it's really coming down to mental health is health. It's yeah. just health. It's just physical health. Your brain is physical. And it is starting to change. I think the information is out there. This was Psychology Today from June of last year, less than a year ago, why your depression may really be insulin resistance. Mm. So if you have insulin resistance, that's basically diabetes or prediabetes type 2. This article says insulin resistance is the most common and least appreciated cause of our modern epidemic of chronic disease. Although we once thought the harms of insulin resistance were limited to metabolic diseases, such as obesity and diabetes, we now know that the effects extend to cognitive function and depression as well. Thankfully, these effects are not only reversible, but reversible through lifestyle changes alone. Right. So we have to get healthier if we want to mentally feel better. Right. So hyperinsulinemia associated depression from uh, Clinical Medicine Insights in Endocrinology and Diabetes, April 2022. This one looked at... 79 different blood metabolites to try to see which one was the identifiable biomarker of depression. So among 79 different things, it was insulin. Right. Why, why would insulin be elevated? Insulin's elevated from a refined high processed carbohydrate diet, processed seed oils, make all of that worse, makes your ability to manage your blood glucose much worse, chronic stress, poor sleep, lack of exercise, all of those things can cause hyper insulinemia, hyper meaning too much. Insulin is the hormone, emia meaning in the blood. Right. So that's, you can, you can guess more accurately who has major depressive disorder right now based on those biomarkers, but you can also predict who's going to get major depression in the future Mm -hmm. based on those biomarkers. So this is a predictive study based on three markers of insulin resistance. American Journal of Psychiatry, this is from October 21, three markers of insulin resistance, which are high fasting glucose, which you could test yourself. You get a little finger prick thing from the pharmacy, put a stick on it, and you can test your blood glucose yourself. You can Mm -hmm. wear a CGM. You've seen people in the gym do that before. High triglycerides and low HDL. So that would be on your blood work from your doctor, your annual checkup. They would check your lipids and a high waist circumference, which you can also easily check by yourself. If If your waist circumference is more than half your height, you have insulin resistance. That's just how it is. Those people who had those three markers of insulin resistance who did not have depression at the start were two to 300% more likely to develop major depression over the course of the following nine years. So that kind of puts an order to things. The insulin resistance tends to occur first and then the depression tends to follow after. Right. It's worth noting that at least a third of the population of North America has those markers yeah. of metabolic syndrome is basically what that is. So a third of the population right now is at a two to 300% increased risk of getting major depression in the next nine years. And it like the, the causes, it could be like something bad happens and it knocks you down into a state of depression, but being sick, like being metabolically unhealthy could just keep you there, right? Like it can be activated by a real thing, right? Mm-hmm. Your mom dies or whatever, something yeah, Terrible. which is like stress, right? Yeah. That's activation of your stress systems. But then yeah. you just stay there. You just you just never get yourself out of the hole because you're just metabolically unhealthy. It's like compounding things yeah. that affect your metabolic health. 
like we said, so emotional, like just stress, chronic stress, emotional stress, job stress, poor diet. Yeah. Obviously, this is the big one. Alcohol, sleep, lack of exercise. Yeah. Lack of time outside, all that stuff. I think we, we've said this probably before, but it always seems fine until it's not fine. Mm-hmm. And then it's really not fine, mm-hmm. you know, and the further down you are, the harder it is to pull yourself up. Yeah. The more compounding things you have layered mm-hmm. on top. Now, what's interesting, and I, I suppose I should say quite shocking and horrifying, is that people with major mental disorders lose 25 to 30 years off their life expectancy. This is from an article called Metabolic Syndrome and Mental Illness in the American Journal of Managed Care. 25 to 30 years, that's like a third of their life expectancy. And you would think, oh, that's probably because people commit suicide with Mm -hmm. mental disorders, commit suicide at higher rates. It's actually not. The primary cause of death is cardiovascular mortality. They die of heart attacks. So if things get bad enough with your metabolic health that you are manifesting Mm -hmm. mental health problems, your overall like body health is probably also very poor at that point and you're more likely to have a heart attack. So of course there's intervening factors and orders of causation in all direction. Obviously like poverty, people that suffer from mental health disorders tend to, they can't work. Mm-hmm. So they'll live in more poverty. They have sometimes reduced access to medical care, but also this paper lists adverse metabolic side effects associated with psychotropic medications, which like you said, 65% of people gain weight right. when they take antidepressant medications, which exacerbates your metabolic health, right? So you see how things start to go in all directions. Obesity, certainly, that's a marker of metabolic health. The relationship there is bi-directional. If you're obese, you're more likely to be depressed. If you're depressed, you're more likely to be obese. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're trying to understand the intertwining mechanisms. They describe it here as the mechanisms responsible for the intertwined downward physiological spiral associated with both conditions. So The shared biological pathways include your HPA axis. That's your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. That's like your stress hormones, cortisol and epinephrine and stuff. Immuno-inflammatory activation. So when your immune system's going haywire, that usually has to do with chronic inflammation or autoimmune disorders. Neuroendocrine regulators of energy metabolism. That's like insulin, leptin, Mm -hmm. the hormones that control your metabolism. And the gut microbiome, which I think is quite interesting. So all those little microbes that live in your gut are making and synthesizing neurotransmitters and vitamins and interacting with all that serotonin that's in your gut. They're interacting with the brain through the vagus nerve, direct like highway, (laughs) neural highway straight to the brain. So things that affect your gut microbiome, stress, alcohol, poor diet. It can also be if you had to take antibiotics and didn't properly repopulate your gut microbiome after you can end up with dysbiosis of all those little bugs in there. But then what gets really frightening is the stuff on obesity and kids. Right. So we keep talking about what's going on with the kids. Why are they at such an increased risk of depression right now? Among adolescents, children and adolescents that are obese, up to 26% of them have major depressive disorder right now. Right. In overweight kids, it's about 17%. So the when you move from overweight to obese, the the rate of depression increases and they tend to get major depression. Um, If you are obese as a child or adolescent, your odds ratio of having depression is 4.39. So that means the odds of an obese child having depression is 439% higher Mm -hmm. than a normal weight child. So something's going on there. Yeah. And then the risk of lifetime major depressive disorder 
So that's like kids that are depressed right now. But being depressed or being overweight as a child also sets you up for lifetime major depressive disorder. So if you're overweight or obese at age eight, your odds ratio of lifetime major depressive disorder is 4.03. So the 403% increased odds that you will have depression for life if you're overweight or obese at age eight. And if you're overweight or obese at age 13, the odds are 2.65, so 265%. So the earlier you're overweight or obese, the worse things are, Mm -hmm. the worse the effects are. And like you said, it's compounding variables, right? This isn't just, oh, the the bigger kids get picked on in school and so they're depressed. It's like there's root causes here, like Mm -hmm. physiological reasoning behind their, their emotional issues. Yeah. And I think a lot of what takes the primary attention in the media right now about kids is like, it's social media. Social Mm -hmm. media is so bad for their brain. And that gets a lot of the attention, which like, certainly it's not good for them, Yeah, but it's not the thing. Yeah. So this is a study from social science and medicine, 2017, problematic social media use and depressive symptoms among us young adults. So they call it problematic social media use. So that's like, chronically scrolling, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, scroll, 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 um, was associated with a 9% increased odds of depressive symptoms. Versus 400. Versus 430, what did I say before? 439% increased odds. So it's, yeah, social media is not good. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying it is. I'm not saying kids should be on Instagram, but like, that's not the thing. That's not the thing. It's clearly the metabolic health of kids these days. That's the thing. And again, compounding variables, right? If you're trying to attack different things, sure, you could just take away Instagram from your kid. But if they're still metabolically unhealthy, you're not getting the $100 bills, right? You're getting those little nickels. (laughs) So like, well, maybe this will help a little bit. But if you really want to address it, like that's the thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we did an episode previously on, we called it nickels versus $100 bills. What do you want to pick up? What are you going to focus on picking up? You want to Focus on the $100 bills. Don't pick up nickels and step over $100 yeah. bills. So yeah, if you have banned TikTok in your house, but there's still pizza pops in the freezer and you're trying to set your kids up for good mental health, that's not, that's wrong order. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. We need both ideally would be awesome. Yeah. It's a little bit like, like back in the fifties and sixties when rates of lung cancer were skyrocketing. Mm-hmm just like rates of mental disorders are skyrocketing right now. And people were like, what's going on? What's the cause? And it wasn't clear or they were, it was heavily debated. And some organizations were trying to push, oh, it's probably air pollution from all the cars on the road now. Yeah, well, air pollution's not good, but like it's clearly the cigarettes. Yeah, (laughs) everybody's smoking. Everybody smokes and people are getting lung cancer. It's clearly that. So that's kind of it right now where it's like, yeah, social media is not good for you and Mm -hmm. it shouldn't be on social media, but like it's clearly the metabolic health of these kids. It also, I'm frequently on a rant (laughs) about our kids' school. Yeah. And they'll do stuff like put on a, a seminar in the evening for safe social media use for kids and how to protect them and blah, blah, blah. And then the next day it'll be like fucking cookie sale. (laughs) Or, you know, it'll be like healthy hunger, hot lunch. And it's like chicken fingers and fries. Deep fried. Bringing in truckloads of processed food into the school. And you're like, what are you doing? (laughs) Nothing healthy about that (laughs) hunger. Yeah, we're approaching like 50% of kids are overweight or obese now. What are we doing here? We're focusing on the wrong thing, surely. And I, I think that like, Mental health is a slippery slope, right? It's not just that obese people are 
susceptible, you know, Mm -hmm. because a lot of people just associate obesity and metabolic health. Mm -hmm. And you can be relatively fit, relatively active and still be metabolically unhealthy, Mm -hmm. right? What's showing outside isn't what necessarily going on inside. Yeah, absolutely. And I, so I think what's happening now or where the future of psychiatry is moving to is just putting major mental disorders in the bucket of chronic disease. Right. It's just another symptom of metabolic dysfunction, of which there are many. Obesity is one. Mm-hmm. Chronic inflammation is one. Autoimmune disorders is one. Di- type 2 diabetes, fatty liver disease, hypertension, heart attack, stroke. They're, just, they're all going in the same bucket with essentially the same root cause. Right. Inflammation is a big one. I've said this before in some of my seminars, a challenge is to take any chronic disease you can think of and Google that disease plus inflammation. And if you can, if you can find a disease that does not have a peer reviewed paper associating that disease with inflammation, you win and you can't win that game because it doesn't (laughs) exist because inflammation is an underlying mechanism of all chronic diseases you can think of. And that's the key word, right? Chronic, because like a little bit of inflammation is good. It's like part of your body's healing process, but chronic inflammation is very bad. Yeah. And really all of these things are natural systems in your body gone haywire. Right. You know, you need glucose in your blood. You need insulin in your blood. You need some inflammation. Like all these things are natural systems gone haywire. Right. So yes. Why, why are they going haywire? What's causing chronic inflammation? What's causing hyperinsulinemia? The poor diet stuff we talked about. To some extent, it's that people are not eating enough mm-hmm. of the right things. They're not eating enough nutrient-dense food that's allowing all their metab- metabolic processes to function properly. Mm-hmm. Meat and mental health. This is a systematic review of meat abstention and depression and anxiety and related phenomenon. Critical reviews in food science and nutrition, April 2020. So they this is a like meta-analysis of 18 studies on 150,000 people. The majority of studies, and especially the higher quality studies, showed that those who avoided meat consumption had significantly higher rates or risk of depression, anxiety, and self-harm behaviors. They concluded, our study does not support meat avoidance as a strategy to benefit psychological health. Mm -hmm. Uh, Vegetarian and veganism compared with mental health and cognitive outcomes. Again, a systematic review and meta-analysis from 2021, the journal Nutrition Reviews. Vegan or vegetarian diets are related to a higher risk of depression. The odds ratio is 2.14. So 214% increased odds of having major depression if you don't eat meat, vegan or vegetarian diets. Subgroup analysis showed anxiety was higher, particularly in participants under age 26. So young people are disproportionately negatively affected by vegan and vegetarian diets. And especially in the, the studies of higher quality showed that they also increased risk of anxiety. Right. And I feel like that's, I mean, for one thing, the standard American diet is a plant-based diet because it's just flour, sugar, and vegetable oil. All those things are plant-based things. But even if you try to do the like healthy vegan or vegetarian plant-based thing, it's just such a nutritionally deficient diet. You're going to be low in amino acids you need for your brain to function and the fats you need for your hormones to function and way too high in carbohydrates and way low in the B vitamins that make your metabolism run. You're just like, Mm -hmm. it's just such a nutrient poor diet that all your body systems fail. Basically they all suffer when they lack the fuel and structure they need. Heavy on the fiber. That's about it. (laughs) Hope you love tootin. (laughs) So we're not eating enough of the good stuff Mm -hmm. and we're eating too much of the other stuff. Ultra processed foods Ultra processed food is something that you could not make in your own kitchen. Mm-hmm. It's a chemical shitstorm, something that came out of a factory. It's the flour, sugar, vegetable oil, deadly yep. combo. Greater ultra processed food consumption 
was associated with increased odds of depression and anxiety when you lump those two together or when you look at them separately. Like 53% higher risk, up to 80% higher risk. The greater ultra-processed food intake was associated with increased risk of subsequent depression. So you eat crappy food now, you get depression in the future. Right. And then linking it back to the kids again, go to any restaurant and what's on the kids menu? Yeah, it's all garbage. Garbage. Like why are we... The worst of the garbage. I don't know why we feed our kids the worst of the worst processed foods. Yeah. And then we expect them to at some point later start eating healthy foods. Yeah. If we teach them to eat crappy foods when they're kids. I don't know. Yeah. It's it's not working and the kids are suffering. It is. Sure. Yeah. But like we said, what we need to understand is this is just one of many symptoms. You can be obese and be metabolically unhealthy. Like you said, you yeah. can be obese and not depressed. You can be depressed and not obese. You can have diabetes, but not depressed. Like you can have some of the symptoms, but not all of them. Yeah. And I think that no one is really immune yeah. from the, yeah. the ill effects. Nobody's invincible, especially in the modern world. Yeah. Like as, and like I said, like it's a slippery slope, right? You can be in a good place and then all of a sudden find yourself in a bad place. And the next thing you know, you're like knee deep in depression, right? Yeah. So we've geeked out on the first half on all the science and numbers. So let's, let's get into our personal stuff yeah and i th i think that's a good bridge into let me tell you about my yeah personal run-in with major depressive disorder i, I had a good childhood mm -hmm. thanks mom and dad <laughs> i don't have any risk factors of adverse childhood experiences or anything yeah always had pretty solid mental health all the way through my life until i got pregnant with dash and Pretty much from the moment I found out I was pregnant, I just started bawling and it never really stopped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. David's like, yeah. <laughs> My doctor, shout out Donna Cameron. She's the best. Realized what was going on really early and recognized what was happening. And I got diagnosed with antepartum depression. Mm -hmm. I feel like most people are familiar with postpartum depression that happens frequently to women after you're pregnant. Antepartum, anti means before, means before you have the baby or while you're pregnant. So, yeah, I feel like reflecting back on that now, at that time. So I, I got pregnant with Dash in 2015. At the time, I was competing in both CrossFit and Olympic weightlifting, <clears throat> so two sports. Yeah. At the start of 2014, we had opened Brio West, and near the end of 2014, we had opened Brio South. So we were trying to run three locations of our business. I was trying to compete in two sports. Um, so lots of just, like, stress of trying to do all that stuff to fuel like I was training a lot, like twice a day. So probably way over training in the oxidative pathway, lots of oxidative stress and probably inflammation. I was fueling all that training with crappy processed food, lots of five cent candies. Yep. And I thought, oh, I'm an athlete. Like I can get away with this or I'm eating this sugar to make me go faster in my workouts. You know, the like common yeah. shitty diet advice you hear for athletes. And we would like, we would go out for dinner more back then. We yeah. would get takeout fast food stuff way more often. Way more than we do now. Yeah. And it got to the point of eating my five cent candies after training every day that like the guy at the seven 11 on the corner <laughs> knew me. <It's laughs> and I was like, this is not the good this is a bad <laughs> sign. Trying to run three locations of our business. Our sleep schedule was super fucked up. Yeah. Really weird sleep. We would train late, stay up late, sleep from, you know, midnight to 5am, get up, coach a class, try to go back to bed, sleep in the day. Yeah. Really weird sleep schedule. So like you said, it's sort of compounding factors. And then pregnancy is essentially a stress test. Yeah. Whatever you're on the verge of prior to being pregnant, it'll probably tilt you over the edge. So if you're pre-diabetic, you'll probably end up with gestational diabetes. If you have several <laughs> mental disorder 
risk factors. You add one more and everything goes tilt. Right. So I tried pretty much everything while I was pregnant, short of taking medication. I just didn't want to do that while I was pregnant, but I went to counseling. I went to therapy. I tried taking vitamin D. I tried to exercise as much as I could get my ass out of bed. It wasn't very good. (laughs) I'll tell you. I remember days where I just like crying all day and couldn't get out of bed. I remember you physically dragging me out of my little sad panda blanket fort (laughs) and trying to make me get up and move and do anything. And yeah. Yeah. So it was a, it was a real, real low time. Yeah. And it didn't really get better while I was pregnant. Unfortunately, I tried all the things other than medication. It just didn't really get better until after I wasn't pregnant anymore. Took that stress out of the system. Yep. It didn't get better right away. Took a while. It took a long time. A long time. To dig myself out of that hole, for sure. Lots of changes had to be put in place to try to make things better. Yeah. Sure. And I, I didn't really talk to many people about it at the time. I think some people that knew me back then... I didn't even tell very many people I was pregnant until I was like almost six months Mm -hmm. because I just kept hoping the wet blanket of depression would lift Mm -hmm. because when you tell someone you're pregnant, let me tell you the exclusive emotion the pregnant lady is allowed to feel is joy. And when I wasn't, people do not like that. Yeah. When I was like, I'm depressed as fuck. I hate this. I can't wait for this to be over. This is the worst period of my life. People are like, oh, no, that is received very negatively. (laughs) So yeah, pregnant ladies only allowed to be happy joy, which is not always the case. I always tell people, if you ever just want to bitch and complain about how bad it's going, you tell me because I get it (laughs) and I will not judge you for however you're feeling on any given day. Yeah. Until... I was basically visibly pregnant and you were like, you have to tell people this is awkward. (laughs) People know. And I just hadn't been saying anything. So yeah, I think I just kept holding out hope that I would go away. Yeah. It just didn't really. And through some like interventions, eventually it did. And Mm -hmm. you know, I mean like long-term eventually things got better, but yeah, at the time it was a rough go. It was, it was rough for a while there. And I was so paranoid that Dash was going to turn out with mental disorders or a bad (laughs) affect because I just felt like he was just bathed in sad hormones the whole time. Yeah. But uh, he's a happy little he's guy. He's pretty cool. And he came out like he's super happy. Literally so. pulled all the happiness he, out of you. Yes. <laughs> maybe he sucked all the happiness right out of me. Yeah. So I think my point in sharing that is probably at that time you would have looked at me and been like, oh, that's a girl with her life together. Mm-hmm. It was like a high performing athlete and business owner and mom and all yeah. stuff. And like behind the scenes struggling as fuck. Yeah. And... Also, I think kind of pushing, 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 pushing and feeling like I was invincible. Mm. I can work all these jobs. I can fuck up my sleep schedule. I can eat candy every day. Yeah. I can train twice a day until you add one more thing. And then yeah. you're like, whoo, no, you can't. The whole thing collapses. The whole yeah. thing collapses. So yeah. I think maybe we all, when we're younger and dumber, have to learn that lesson that like, hey, you're not invincible. Yeah. You know, just because you're like, I eat candy every day, but I'm not obese. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's fine until it's not fine. Yeah. You know? I think what you said about people looking at you and thinking like, oh yeah, she's got her life together is is such a common theme. We all put on a face when we're out in public, you know, mm-hmm. everybody's, how you doing? Ah, fine. Good. Yeah. You know, it's, but who knows, who knows what's circular going on. I remember early on when Ian and I first started like building our relationship, you know, we'd gone to regionals together. We had done fun stuff in a group, but we'd never really hung out just the two of us. And so we started going out and having beers together and solving all of the world's problems <laughs> and you know, we started like opening up to each other and 
I remember looking at Ian and I just, I just had so much respect for him. You know, I was like, this guy is, he's so fit. He's like such a crazy athlete. He's a good dad. He's got this great job. He's got a good relationship. And I remember just being like, this guy's got his life together, you know, like he's killing it. And then you start talking to him and it's like, he's had his share of troubles just like everybody else. Right. But then he told me that he felt the same way about me. He was like, I thought you were just like killing it and like, all these, you're doing all these great things. And I was like, what? No, like I had a crazy (laughs) life. What are you talking about? And you don't realize until you talk to somebody, like what's really going on or what has happened, right? Like the, the old quote, everybody has a story that'll make you cry or break your heart or whatever it is. Yeah. It's super relevant, you know? So we all suffer with sad feelings and anxious feelings and imposter syndrome. And for sure, it's easy to look at someone, hold them up on a pedestal and go, well, that person's got to figure it out. And you're like, maybe not, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Who knows what the internal process is. So, I mean, probably we should all just stand to just be kind yeah. to other people. You never know what someone's going through. Yeah. So, I had a much different life than you did. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yes. Joss and I spent many hours talking about <laughs> my childhood. So, you're an only child. Yep. Parents are together, still are. Yep. Pretty happy upbringing. I came from a fairly difficult home situation. In my family, I have a brother who's two years younger than me and then a sister who's four years younger than me. So I'm the oldest. And basically my mom married the wrong guy. You know, at the time it seemed like a good idea, but now she'll admit she's like, I shouldn't have done that. That was a bad decision. So he came from a really rough family and he was an addict, an alcoholic, and just generally a pretty rough around the edges type of guy. So very early, my parents got divorced when I, I don't even remember them being together. It was when I was super little, like five or something. And <clears throat> shortly after that, my mom did meet another guy and he was a lawyer and they were both into climbing and it was like this bright future. His family was really great. And we were like, oh, this is amazing. Things are going to turn around. And then just before they got married, he died in a climbing accident so it was like, ah, frick, yeah. <laughs> and that derailed everything. So, so super traumatic, super yeah. traumatic early on. And, you know, I just never really grew up with much of a male role model. There was just never really that like strong, influential person in my life. My dad wasn't super supportive. My mom tried to give him like weekend visits and stuff. But the way that would work is he would pick us up or we, sorry, we would get dropped off. We would go to the movie store, rent some movies. We would go to the 7-Eleven and get a bunch of chocolate bars and pop and then we would go to the liquor store and he would get a 2-6 and then we would go home to his house in his basement suite and the kids would watch movies while he read a book and drank and then we would just go to bed and like the same thing the next day so my whole life with my dad was mostly watching him drink so yeah not not a great situation I was kind of a, a late bloomer I guess like early on I had really bad skin and that was like a genetic thing. My whole family has always had really bad skin. So I was picked on pretty, pretty bad in, in junior high. And I was definitely like in my early teens, I was a fairly emotional kid. And I went through some pretty dark phases where I would say for sure I had some like early depression signs. And it wasn't really until my later teens that I started to build up any kind of level of confidence at all. But you know, my mom did her best to raise the three of us. She was on her own. My dad didn't really support. We didn't really get any like money from him and his interactions weren't great. So my mom did the best that she can, but she was trying to work full time and she was trying to raise two other kids. And I was just always like fairly unsupervised. I was roaming the neighborhood, just like doing what I was doing and trying to figure out things on my own. So yeah, it was, it was a weird, 
life. I, I started to become a little bit of an outsider from my family because I was so independent. I wasn't super tight with my extended family. It, I was up and down with my immediate family, but you know, we, we weren't like, we weren't like a super close family, I would say. So early on, like one of my earliest memories is I remember always wanting to be a dad, you know, that was just always a thing that I wanted to do. And often when you grow up in my sort of setting, you don't want to repeat that. You're like, I don't want anything to do with that. But I always knew for sure I wanted to be a dad. And I always thought my family sucks and I can do this better. I just always knew in the back of my mind that this doesn't have to be this way. There's, mm-hmm. there's a way to do this better. And from early on, I had what in psychology they call a growth mindset where I'm like, I'm not going to be a victim of what has happened to me. I'm going to do it better. And I'm going to, you know, work to, to make it happen for myself. And like for an, a reason we have not yet been able to identify. We yeah. describe it like the spinning top in the movie Inception was just that from one of your earliest core memories, you were like, I am separate from this. I can be in charge of making my own life. I can be better. I can do it better. That you just had an internal locus of control. Yeah. You were like, I can be in charge of, of what my life becomes. Yeah. And it's funny because Ian is a, what's it called? Occupational Thank therapist. You. An occupational therapist. So he works with trying to get people's like lives together. And he's asked me so many times, he's like, what did you do? Like, how, did you have a list of things you did? What was the steps? And I was like, Ian loves making lists. Yeah. You guys. I was like, I have no idea. I just, for whatever reason, in the back of my mind, I was always just like, nope, it can be better. I can do better than this. And yeah. that started my life of like always striving to improve and striving to grind and work and, and all that kind of thing. It was like a little bit of my circumstances caused me to be in the state I am right now. So I built a life that I'm super proud of and I worked my ass off and it was pure determination of hard work. You know, it was very little opportunity and mostly just like grit, right? So my brother, on the other hand, was always very different. So when we were in high school, he was always known as Dave's brother because I was Dave in high school. (laughs) Don't call me Dave now. I was, he was always Dave's brother, right? He was always in my shadow a little bit. And I remember like one time when I had moved off and was briefly in, in college, I came back and I was telling stories and it was like him and three of his friends sitting around me, just looking up at me, like listening to my stories of going to the bar and with (laughs) girls and stuff. And they were just like, Oh my God. But he was always a little bit in my shadow. Right. So when he finally grew up and got out of school, he went in a completely different direction. I never went to full on university. I did my massage therapy degree or certificate or whatever it is, but I never did full on university. Whereas he was like in university, but floating around, you know, he would change his major and he would kind of like take classes that weren't really relevant to anything and just was always a lost soul, right? Just trying to figure out where he wanted to be. And so finally he ends up finishing his education and decides he's going to see the world. So he's like traveling around as like a hippie, right? He goes to Korea and is teaching English and he's traveling around and lived in a hippie commune in Thailand for a while. Just like hippie dippy life. And he was loving it, right? He always was like a little bit of an outsider, didn't really agree with the way the world worked, and so tried to pull himself away from it. Mm-hmm. And then one day he meets a girl, and she's the same. He's like, I found my, my soulmate. This is amazing. She's exactly like I am, and she wants all the same things. He wanted nothing to do with the family. He never wanted kids, right? We had very opposite opinions on that whole thing, and she didn't want kids either. They were both teaching English in Korea yeah. when they met, right? Both on their like free spirit. Yeah. Thing. And so they get married and soon afterwards her hippie phase is over. She wants to settle down and start like thinking about a family. And he's like, whoa, 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 that wasn't part of the deal. So all of a sudden they're disagreeing on what they want of their lives. And it got to the point where eventually they separated and divorced. So 
my brother was just devastated by that because he thought he just, all he needed was like to find somebody to live his weird life with. And he, he thought he had that and it just, it didn't work out. And it was just super devastating for him. So that was like, you know, again, he'd always struggled with some mental health stuff, just like me growing up, but that was when it really hit him hard and he got into some pretty major depressive episodes. He started self-medicating with marijuana and was like a chronic 24 seven, always on it. And for the first little while was super like loved it. You know, he just thought it was so cool that he could get prescribed marijuana in Canada. And he even started working in the medical marijuana industry But then he was so against the way society works that he hated the commercialization of marijuana. So he started like revolting against it and was just like... He quit his job at the weed store because it was too corporate. It was too corporate, yeah. (laughs) I always thought it was great. Which is hilarious. So, you know, eventually it gets to the point where the marijuana, because he's just too foggy, he can't think, and he just needs to to stop. So he, he tries everything else. He tries all the medications. He tried therapy. He was put in the hospital a few times and just like really, really struggling the whole time. And I remember the last time he came out to visit after after the marijuana had stopped, it was a noticeable difference. Before he seemed fairly happy, but afterwards it was like, oh, like this is bad. You know, like he's really struggling right now and just like seemed like he had no energy and no anything. It was just negative. Really deep. And that was... He came to visit Dash when he was a yeah. baby, so Dash was just a few months old. Yeah, so Dash was super little. So this was right in the midst of when we all were the shit I was just talking struggling, about. Yeah. and so you know I knew he was he was having a hard time, but we were trying to figure things out too and have a new baby, and all around it seemed okay. Well, yeah, we're all struggling. I get it, man. We're all struggling, and so eventually he's like, okay, I need to do something different, and so he decides he's going to move to BC and he's going to go work on this farm with this this kind of family group type thing and he's going to try to just live in nature and do what he can and he moved out to BC and eventually we hadn't really heard from him for a little while and it turns out that he had ended his life so <laughs> so they found his body and he had left videos for all of us And he basically said, this is what I want. And he believed that he had the right to die. And, you know, he he basically took a permanent solution to a temporary problem. So that was it. So when when that first happened, I didn't want to talk about it. You know, I'm not a very vocal person. Mm-hmm. I have a history of just mushing things down, <laughs> and, down and keeping my feelings to myself, but it was a pretty significant thing. And, you know, I, I knew I had to at least tell the people that were close to me. So I, I remember posting up in one of our, like it was a Facebook group or something for some of our competitive athletes and coaches and stuff early on and basically said, like, you know, just FYI, this is what's happened. And if I'm off in the next little while this is why and I appreciate your support and and I basically said I really value you guys because I feel like if my brother could have found a community like I found with my CrossFit world things probably would have been very different for him and you know everybody was super supportive and stuff and it's it's always just one of those things where it's like it hits you in the face and you're like what that's horrible and when word got out I got all these messages from all these people from my past I hadn't talked to in years giving support and everything and that's great, but it's it's a very like proactive approach to 
mental health. It's like we can't wait until after something horrible happens to support each other and help each other. So it was after that that I was like, oh, enough is enough. <laughs> we need to get our lives together. Like we can't keep going on this path. You know, you and I were having our struggles. Clearly my brother was having some major struggles. I was like, we need to do something to remedy this situation. Mm-hmm. And that was really the catalyst to a lot of the changes we made in our life. Yeah. We had to stop acting like we were all invincible. Yeah. I think. And grief and trauma does strange things to people, to yourself and the people around you. Also, while I was pregnant, my youngest cousin was killed in a motorcycle accident. He was 26. Very out of the blue. Yeah. And that did some crazy things on my side of the family. Some people stopped talking to each other and, you know, caused a real, I don't know, grief makes people handle things in a strange way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my my brother's thing ripped our family apart as well. And it's just, it's unfortunate how much a a, a terrible negative thing just leads to more negative things, you know? Yeah. And sometimes I think in the spirit of real raw honesty, opening up to people is risky. Yeah. I remember we had a friend at the time. So this was March of 2017 when your brother took his own life. And talking to this person and I remember them saying to your face, looking at you and saying they didn't think that you should be upset because you had lots of support. Yeah. And I remember thinking that's one of the worst, most atrocious things I've ever seen a human being say to another person. Yeah. What? And you're looking at a guy grieving the death of his little brother and you're telling him he doesn't deserve to be upset because he has lots of support what the fuck does that even mean yeah i was just trying to have an open conversation i was being like anything that i've done that's offended you or bothered you like i'm sorry like i'm not trying to cause problems and i just i hope you can understand i've had a rough year i've had some some pretty unfortunate things happen to me and that's when they said yeah but you've had a lot of support with that and i was like what what (laughs) just because people were supportive of me doesn't mean I'm not going to be upset about it and it's not going to affect me and it's not going to have consequences. What are you talking about? So I I get why people are are reluctant to open up sometimes. You know, it doesn't always go well. Like I said, you know, opening up to people about me being depressed while I was pregnant was really not well received a lot of the time. So I think we decided to share our stories or open up the conversation in in the spirit of being part of the change you would like to see in the world. If people feel like they want to open up about their struggles, they should feel safe and welcome to do so. You don't have to. You don't have to go tell in the world all your problems and what's going on. But if you decide to open up, you should feel safe, I think, to be able to do that. We can all express a little more kindness and empathy to each other in our struggles, probably. Yeah, absolutely. You never know what's going on. Yeah, you never know what's going on with someone, right? And even like within our own family and what we want to demonstrate to our kids, like Mm. not pretending like, we have it all figured out and everything's great. And, yeah. You know. Yeah. I think Atlas and I are like, he's my mini me, right? Yeah. He's like, he's like a small version of me. And I think that both physically we look the same. I think <laughs> mentally we're very much the same as well. Yeah. And, you know, he's an emotional kid. And I remember the first time we had sort of heard about him, like with some struggles that had come out, not from him telling us, but just through the grapevine. And, you know, when we, when we, when I remember when I talked to him about it, I was, he was like, he was afraid to talk to me because he knew my brother had killed himself and he didn't want to upset me or make me feel more bad or anything like that. And I was like, oh, dude, no, you ha- you ha- I'm the first person you should think to talk to, you know, like mm-hmm. 
I've been through some shit and I've, I've seen some stuff and things have happened and I get it, man. I get that sometimes you're going to feel sad and sometimes you're going to just not know what to do with yourself. And it's, you have to be able to talk to us about it, you know? And then he was a little bit like, really? Like, you yeah. feel like that sometimes too? And you're like, dude, of course. Well, he, you know, he lets me make, make that more like open. That, yeah. We all struggle. And it's funny because like you and I are very good at talking. We talk a lot and we've always tried to be open about our, our discussions or our disagreements or whatever, even in front of the kids so that they see that we're, we're not yelling at each other. We're just, we're having a discussion and we're trying to solve it. But I think a lot of the stuff that happened with my brother, it was very emotional for a long time and, and it happened kind of behind closed doors and it was you and I just trying to like figure it out on our end before we really got into it with them. And so even through that, Atlas always was just like, you guys are just, you're happy and you're, you're just so good at everything and you just know what you're doing. It's like, no, dude, like you do not understand how much work this takes. Like we are just trying to figure it out as we go along, just as much as everybody else. We're just like, we're open to figuring it out. And that's the big thing, right? We're, we're always trying to make it, trying to make it better and trying to learn and trying to fix things and just, you know, do a better job. And get help where you need it. Ask for help where you need it. Like I said, I went to therapy while I was pregnant. You went to therapy after your brother died. Like, I think that is a more socially acceptable thing to talk about now, which is positive. It used to be like, he's going to therapy. (laughs) It was this whisper behind closed doors. But now people are like, so my therapist told me and they're like tweeting about it. You know, it's like, at least that's like going in the right direction. (laughs) Of course, you should be working on your mental health. We all should be. And it's natural and normal to need help with that. Yeah. It was funny when I, I, maybe I've said this in a previous podcast, but I remember when I started going to see a therapist and I was like telling her my thoughts. And then I was saying what you had said in response. And she was like, oh yeah, she's right. (laughs) (laughs) And then it kept being over and over again that like everything that you were saying was what the therapist would be saying anyway. So I was like, I don't even need a therapist. I'm just going to talk to my (laughs) wife about this. My wife doesn't charge me like however much money a session. I'm just going to let her be my therapist. (laughs) We do talk to each other a lot. We do. We're a good grounding sounding board for each other. We keep each other as level-headed as possible. We talk each other off the crazy tree sometimes, for sure. So we've talked about what depression is not. Mm -hmm. It's not a chemical imbalance in the brain. Yeah. Why the current tools are not particularly effective. What it probably is a manifestation of chronic disease and metabolic health, which can happen to anybody, right? That there's various ways that you can get yourself into poor metabolic health, not just being obese or junk food or type two diabetes. There are a lot of things that you can control. And that was what we figured out in those years where we were like, okay, we have to purposefully design our life around caring for our physical health, which is our mental health and not acting like we're invincible and what can we get away with, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, there's certainly a lot of things that are out of your control, but there's a lot of things that are within your control. And the good news is that the things that are within your control are super effective for both preventing and treating mental health. Yeah. And even if you don't feel like you have a concern now, like we talked about, it can, it can happen anytime. You never know, right? No need to drive without a seatbelt on. Yeah. By age, by age 40, 50% of people have experienced some sort of mental health. So I think that preventative maintenance is your best line of attack. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit in the next episode about what you can do for that and, and what we did. And then we'll finish up later with some future stuff. Yeah. So we'll talk all about the things that are within your control in the next one. Thank you for sitting through this emotional episode. <laughs> <laughs> all right. See you in the next one.